Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Abide in Liberty. I've been talking about the past few weeks about how we really should be doing a lot more with our lives. We need people to stand up. We need to spend our time more wisely, that there's so much out there that can distract and prevent us from um, doing a lot of good. And no conversation of that nature would be complete without talking about technology and screens. You know, there's a lot of movies out there that talk about zombies, but I believe the zombie apocalypse is already here. And you have only to see that by standing the grocery line and looking at where people's attention is. You see this in cars as people drive around with their faces looking down instead of out and about at the world around them as they speed by. We probably see this in our living rooms during quote-unquote family time. You can see the zombie apocalypse in airports, and you can even see it in church as you sit in your church services or in Sunday school. This technology that sits in our pocket can be an incredible tool if used appropriately. I feel that for most of us, though, and myself included, all too often use these devices as a gateway to unproductive, meaningless, and empty lives full of simulated artificial senses of accomplishment and fake, unfulfilling relationships. And in the worst case, these tools can become a gateway to a life of moral depravity and perversion. I want to spend a little bit talking about the impact of screens. There's a great book that I recommend to everybody called Glow Kids that does a really good job of summarizing the research that has been done since the dawn of the television and has incorporated new research um, that has been coming out about the impact of these little teeny tiny screens and phones and tablets and how that differs even from the impact of television. I also want to compare that with uh, my own observations, being a teacher, as well as the observations of other teachers and educators that I know. I want you to try an experiment. Play an hour of a video game, scroll social media for an hour, or peruse YouTube for an hour, and then sit down and try to read a classic. Pay attention to how difficult that is. And then go 48 hours with no screens whatsoever, no no social media, no video games, no YouTube, no television, and then sit down and try and pick up where you left off on that same classic. What you should notice and what you will probably notice is how much easier it is to focus and how much more enjoyable that classic is when you've had when your your mind has been purged of the effects of screens. Now what that effect is and what they're finding is that the light and the the quickly changing images, and there's a whole lot that goes into this, and I don't have time to go into it on this podcast, but the effects of those games and those screens and the research that has gone into the to creating them to be addictive is such that um, it is hyper-stimulating to the brain in the same way that taking cocaine is. And in fact, in VA hospitals, they've tested this where they pulled patients off of morphine and used video games to help manage pain. And they found that in most cases, the, the endorphins and the hyper-stimulated state that's created by the uh, video games is more effective 
than that same hyperstimulated state that is created by the drug morphine. And that is just incredibly astounding. So when your brain is in that hyperstimulated, artificially hyperstimulated state, it is very difficult to slow down to the speed of real life, to slow down to the speed of a novel or of a classic. And this is absolutely true for adults. At best for adults, it robs time and the ability to focus, both of which are needed if we're to be anxiously engaged in a good cause and anxiously engaged in building God's kingdom on earth. But it's even more true for children whose brains are still developing. They have not developed the ability to regulate themselves because their brain physiology doesn't allow it, and they haven't had experience to be able to develop those habits. They're still very much at young ages driven by instinct and not by well-thought-out choices that take into account the impact of their actions on the next 10, 20, 30 years. They just don't think that way. They don't have the ability to yet. And in fact, that that brain doesn't completely develop until our mid-20s. I had a conversation with my mom a few years ago where she was talking about how she has seen the ability of children to focus changed just in the short 15 years since she founded the school and has been able to observe many, many kids. You know, back when she started, we uh, we typically try to get at Liberty Youth Academy each student through a lesson of math a day. And when she started, that was not really a problem at all. There were a few exceptions, but for the most part, people were able, or students, were able to get through a lesson of math every day during the time allotted for that in school. Now, over the past 15 years, that amount of time allotted in school has not changed, but the ability of students to focus to the point where they can complete that level of work every day has drastically diminished. The ability to focus has just taken a nosedive, and it's no accident that that has happened in lockstep with the prevalence of smartphones and tablets. The iPhone has only been around since 2007. And even at first, it wasn't common for a young child, five, six, 10 years old to have one. It is today. And the effect on those children's ability to focus is staggering. My own experience teaching bears that out. You know, at the beginning of a new school year, you're getting to learn new students. But by the second day, I can pinpoint, and every other teacher at our school can pinpoint, who spends daily time on screens or who spends excessive amounts of time on screen. And the telltale signs are the complete inability to focus, the complete inability to talk in conversation with their peers about anything besides the video game that they happen to be obsessed with. In the first creative writing and art assignments that I give out, It's almost comical to watch these looks of horror when I say something like, I need you to write a story. You can be about anything, but you cannot include any video game elements and no portals to get you from one place to another. They're just dumbstruck. And when it comes to art, if they're they're asked to create something or to sculpt something, they're incapable of, if they're obsessed with Minecraft, they cannot create something that isn't blocky or something that doesn't look like a creeper. And it's only with great painstaking work that we help tease out the ability to have original creative thoughts of their own. And that's only if parents will limit their screen time appropriately. Kids are sponges. 
And when they spend so much time on screens, what they're absorbing is laziness, apathy, and someone else's imagination. So much potential is wasted and frittered away both after school and during school because what they spend their time doing after school directly impacts their ability to learn and absorb information during school. And like I mentioned before, when you are hyper-stimulated by these screens, slowing down to the speed of math, slowing down to the speed of spelling, slowing down to the speed of reading, slowing down to the speed of history and science is nearly impossible and time is wasted. It is absolutely destroying the one resource that we cannot get back and that all successful people in world history have have been able to use wisely, and that's time. And you only have to look at the quality of writing and thinking of today's generation compared with the generation before people wasted mindless hours in front of screens. One really poignant example of this, I read the diary of Anne Frank a couple of years ago. And the biggest thing that I found just completely astounding was how articulate this little girl was. So Anne Frank, Anne Frank was a 13-year-old Jewish girl in Amsterdam who went into hiding during the Nazi occupation. And during that time, she kept a journal of her thoughts and her feelings as she was going through this experience as she lived in seclusion, this teeny, tiny space for months on end with her family. And eventually another family came uh, to join. This entry that she wrote was about just kind of a normal day. Um, And I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs. I want you to pay attention to the writing of this 13-year-old girl. It's lovely weather outside, and I've quite perked up since yesterday. Nearly every morning, I go to the attic where Peter works to blow the stuffy air out of my lungs. Peter was a uh, boy that was in a family that came in, was in hiding with them. From my favorite spot on the floor, I look up at the blue sky and the bare chestnut tree on whose branches little raindrops shine, appearing like silver, and at the seagulls and other birds as they glide on the wind. The best remedy for those who are afraid, lonely, or unhappy is to go outside somewhere where they can be quite alone with the heavens, nature, and God. Because only then does one feel that all is as it should be and that God wishes to see people happy amidst the simple beauty of nature. As long as this exists, and it certainly always will, I know that then there will always be comfort for every sorrow, whatever the circumstances may be. And I firmly believe that nature brings solace in all troubles. Now compare that. I'm not going to play the clip, but I heard on a different podcast that I listened to um, a recording of a TikTok video of a young lady who's trying to express her feelings of frustration about the dating scene today. And the reason why I don't want to play this is because I don't want to just laugh at it. It's being sent around social media and it's being mocked and ridiculed by virtually everybody. And for me, it's much more sad than funny because it's a perfect example of how much this generation's ability to communicate has been torpedoed by how much time they waste on mindless frivolity. You know, what What did Anne Frank spend her time with? This was in the 1940s. Televisions were not yet commonplace. They didn't have one. They had a radio. Um, but she spent her time learning French because she thought it would be fun to learn French. 
Uh, she spent her time reading and writing and drawing and developing her mind. That was what she did for fun. And that was not, now she was exceptional in her ability to write and how much she wrote during this time. And what was so exceptional about it was this diary survived and we were able to get this glimpse into the mind of a young child. But this type of eloquence was not as rare as it is today. We just don't see that. There's lots of 13 and 14-year-old girls and young men. There's lots of 30 and 40-year-old women and men who have platforms and the ability to express their thoughts and get it out to a wide audience, and you still cannot find, or it's very difficult to find, this level of eloquence and depth of thought anywhere out there. And why is that? Well, it's because we haven't developed that muscle. We've developed the ability to sit and turn our minds off. We've developed the ability to mindlessly swipe. You know, I... I'm becoming more and more convinced that we have bought the lie that if we are learning or if we're reading a classic, something that challenges the mind, then that is somehow not relaxing. You know, we I hear this all the time. Well, yes, I watch TV. And I'm not saying not to watch TV. We just had a family movie night last night. But we've somehow bought the lie that something that requires mental energy cannot be relaxing and rejuvenating. And that is simply false. People throughout history have found relaxation and rest through reading and learning, but reading and learning is only boring and stressful by comparison to the alternative mind-numbing, weakening slop that we are used to serving up ourselves through the television or our pocket pals. It's the same thing with sugar intake. We, Our taste buds can become so desensitized by an abundance of sugar that apples aren't that great. But if you've ever gone off sugar, processed sugar completely, then that nutritious apple all of a sudden does satisfy the sweet tooth. And it's the same thing with, with mental junk food. When we surround ourselves with mental sugar, processed sugar, artificial sugars, then the really good stuff, the nutritional stuff, seems bland by comparison until we get it out of our lives or we severely limit it. And then all of a sudden, that classic, that that thing that was challenging, that thing that we wanted to learn but just seemed so boring before is exciting and invigorating and relaxing and rejuvenating. Now, I want to address the counterarguments that I've heard against um, controlling screens either for ourselves or for our children. And the first one is, yes, I get that there's these downsides but there's always downsides with each technological advancement. You know, one of my favorite examples of this is uh, the Greek philosopher Plato. He hated the idea of books. He was raised in the school of passing down knowledge through oral tradition, through memorization, and then passing that on to your students. Uh, now, fortunately, his greatest pupil, Aristotle, didn't agree with him. And so he wrote down what Plato taught him. And that's one of the reasons why we have it today. That's why we know that Plato didn't like books was because his student wrote down and wrote about that. But when you look at technological advancements, you have to make sure that the total benefits from that technology outweigh the costs. And in the case of screen time and all this technology, I simply don't see that for young children. The net gain or what they gain does not exceed the cost. Now, as you, as human beings develop and as we progress into adolescence and into youth and into adulthood, that's less clear. Um, in fact, I do think all this technology does have a positive net benefit to the world if the tool is used appropriately. 
Just like a hammer, it can be used to build, but it can also be used to tear down or even to kill. And I think too many of us in this world allow it to be used to destroy our most precious commodity, time. And if we allow that to persist, the end result, when we reach the end of our lives, we'll be having accomplished far less, a fraction of what we could have done, of what God expected us to do, and what we committed to do in the pre-existence. And another common counter-argument is, but they need to be prepared. I need to let them use this technology so that they'll be prepared for future careers. Well, guess what was in vogue during my elementary school days? Oregon Trail. And not once have I used the skills I learned playing Oregon Trail in my career. Things are progressing so fast. They have progressed so fast, and they're speeding up more still that whatever technological quote-unquote preparation you pile on your kids now will be obsolete by the time they enter the workforce. Ah, you might say, but future jobs will be in programming, so I should at least prepare them to program so they can handle whatever that is. Well, will it be programming? I was just listening to uh, another podcast that made a pretty convincing argument that, that in the next 10 to 15 years, AI will be doing a lot of the programming. Okay, well, maybe we need to be able to program the AI. But again, things are advancing so fast that what language you learn or what model or construct you use will likely be obsolete. DOS was a big thing when I was in elementary school. Doesn't come in very handy today. Now, what I did find was when I entered the workforce, I found that there were some processes. I worked in accounting, and I found that some of the processes where I worked were slow and cumbersome. I also learned that there was a programming language that wasn't around when I was in school, but that was around then called Visual Basic that allowed you to automate processes in Excel in particular. And because I had learned to love learning and I found it enjoyable, I taught myself Visual Basic, developed some tools that helped speed things up, and was able to learn it no problem. So again, not learning to program when you're five or six or 14 or 15 does not mean that you won't be able to later. I've also heard many people say, well, I don't want my kid to feel different. I don't want them to feel ostracized or looked down on because they don't have a phone when all of their friends do. The only thing I really have to say to that is you got to get over it. You know, if if we're disciples of Christ, we're going to be different anyways. And this is just a lame, pointless excuse. Besides which, do you really want your kids to be normal or do you want them to be exceptional? If you want a normal zombie kid, then do what all the other normal zombie kids' parents are doing. But if you want a child who is exceptional, you're going to have to embrace different. If you want a child who's going to stand out and lead in an exceptional way, then you've got to do what exceptional leaders and thinkers throughout history have done. And that is not waste their time on frivolity. Another counter-argument is that Children need to learn how to use these tools properly because you can't get by in this world without it. I am using technology to record and publicize this podcast. And while that's true that we do need to train our children to use these tools appropriately, the same thing could be said of a car. That doesn't mean we give them the keys when they're two years old. We wait until a time where they're more responsible when they're when it's more developmentally appropriate and they're more developmentally able to handle 
that tool in an appropriate way. And although this little phone seems to be harmless, the mental, intellectual, and spiritual damage that it can cause children is just as real as the physical damage that giving a two-year-old a set of car keys could cause. But we also we often don't see the results of that damage until it's too late, until many years down the road. So what do we do about this? Well, first of all, uh, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all. And every parent and every family should be prayerful about how to appropriately limit and moderate screen usage. However, there are some recommendations that I'd like to leave you with that as our school families have adopted, we have seen marked differences and improvements in educational outcomes, at least, for students. And most of those parents come back and are just grateful for those recommendations because their kid is different. They're less aggressive. They're less grumpy. They're less prone to anger. They're more pleasant. They get along better with their sibling. I and mean, there's just so many other benefits to this. So I do want to leave you with a starting point as you prayerfully consider what to do. Because quite frankly, if you decide you're going to dig deep and limit yourself to two hours of social media every day, you need to dig deeper than that. That is not going to cut it. So here's generally kind of what the medical consensus is, is that there should be no screens whatsoever before the age of two. And if you can postpone it later than that, that is much to be preferred. And then after that, technology usage among kids should be very controlled and limited, none during the school week. And avoid it on Sunday too, so you've got a full 24 hours for their minds to unwind from that hyper-stimulated state. And then on the weekends, it should be very limited, an hour or two a day, tops. Now, you can't just remove something without replacing it. You've got to replace that time that you were spending or that your kids were spending uh, with something else. And here's uh, what we need to be spending that time doing. We need to be building skills that are timeless. This is true for us and our kids. And some of those skills include loving to learn. Because if we love to learn, we can tackle whatever new thing there is out there when the time comes. We need to learn how to learn, learn how to love it. We need the ability to think deeply and critically about problems. We need to develop work ethic. We need to learn principles that are true regardless of the level of technological advancement our society happens to have. We need to learn how to resist temptation, how to repent, how to learn God's will and follow it regardless of the consequences or how crazy it may look. That's what we should be filling our time with. Personally, I don't want to be just like everybody else, and I don't want my kids to be just like everybody else. I want them to be able to think, to create, and to lead. And you don't get that by enslaving our minds to the addictive machines that are designed for that very purpose. We need to be willing to to dare to not allow our kids to sell their birthright for something that nourishes less than a mess of pottage. We shouldn't let our kids make their own dieting decisions. We wouldn't dream of letting them just eat sugar all day. And if we wouldn't allow them to do that to their bodies, we should be even more careful in how we help them curate their their emotional, intellectual, and spiritual diets. We need to dare to be different and realize that is not a bad thing.
Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.